Good morning. It's great to see each of you here this morning on a beautiful Lord's Day. And uh, thank the Lord it isn't raining today, but it's good to be in God's house. We've been in a series that Stephen started a couple weeks ago called Once Upon a Time. And Once Upon a Time, the stories uh, of the Old Testament. Uh, there's many stories that are there, and one that we're going to look at this morning is a story about a guy that had a lot of money. Everyone likes a story where there's a lot of money. Uh, we love to peek inside the lives of, of the rich and famous. We love to see what kind of cars they drive and what kind of clothes they wear and uh, what their toilets look like, you know. You can go to the rich and famous pages and you can see all kind of things. Uh, as a culture, we, we always seem to be fascinated with the ultra-rich. Probably all of you have at one time or another wondered what it would be like to win the Publishers Clearinghouse sweepstake and $25,000 a week for life. What would you do with all of that, that money? We could only speculate what we might do. I, I don't know what I'd do if I had a million dollars. I suppose buy some cool stuff and of course everybody says we'd help people. Um, I'd give it a shot if someone would give me a million dollars. But the story I want to tell is about a guy who had a lot more than a million dollars, at least in today's equivalency. He was, he was more up there with the Bill Gates and the, the Warren Buffetts and the Jeff Bezos of our, of our world. Just wealth beyond what we can even comprehend. This guy was not only rich, but he was a king, and he was a, a very smart one. We know him by the name of Solomon. Solomon. I'm sure most of us have heard of Solomon, and, and probably most of us know the story. Uh, uh, I'm reading through the Bible plan on, on the Bible app, and, and this week is where we are at, right in the middle of this story of Solomon. If you remember the story, it, it really begins uh, even before Solomon's birth. His father David was king, and, and as king, uh, uh, he, he, he got away from God, uh, and, and he had an affair with one of the wives of one of his friends. And out of that relationship, there was a pregnancy and because of that pregnancy and trying to cover it up, he ended up having his friend murdered. And then he took that woman Bathsheba to be his wife. And that child, as a result of that, that pregnancy, died. Uh, but then there was another child born, and that was Solomon. And Solomon really wasn't the one in line to be king. Uh, he wasn't the firstborn. Uh, but David had made a promise to Bathsheba that when Solomon was born, that he would be the next king of Israel. And so now it was coming to the end of David's life and, and uh, Bathsheba wanted, reminded uh, uh, Nathan the prophet and they together went and reminded David 
that Solomon was to be king. One of the brothers, an older brother, had tried to, to, to make himself king. And so they went in and said, hey, you said Solomon was going to be king. And as a result of that, David passes the reign on to his son Solomon. He most likely knows Solomon as being the wisest man that ever lived. And he was a wise man, but he was also a man that had a, a thousand wives and concubines. Just think of that. That, that just kind of you know, blows your mind. A thousand wives and concubines. But this morning, I want to look at Solomon not from the perspective of his wisdom, not from his, his infidelities and, and this almost playboy kind of lifestyle, but I want us to look at Solomon from the perspective of his wealth. I want us to look inside this life of one of the richest rulers that ever lived and just see if there might be something uh, to learn about how we are to live. This morning I want to, to look at this idea of stuff. Do you have any stuff? Huh? How many of you have stuff? You got some stuff. At this point in the story, where we're going to pick it up, David is already passed on. He, Solomon is now on the throne. Our let me just back up a minute. The very, at the very end of David's life, David gave Solomon this advice just before he died. Let's look at 1 Kings chapter 2. These are the last words that David gave to Solomon before he died. He said, I'm going where everyone on earth must go someday. Take courage and be a man. Observe the requirements of the Lord your God and follow all his ways. Keep the decrees, commands, regulations, and laws written in the law of Moses so that you will be successful in all you do and whatever and wherever you go. If you do this, then the Lord will keep the promise he made to me. He told me, if your descendants live as they should and follow me faithfully with all their heart and soul, one of them will always sit on the throne of Israel. As you may know, the law of Moses were the instructions that God gave to Israel for how they were to live their lives. And those instructions uh, covered the whole spectrum of life. And even there were specific commands uh, for the king uh, and leaders of God's people. So essentially, David was saying, if you want your life to go well, if you want your kingdom to endure, then there is an instruction book that you need to follow. And here it is, the law of Moses. Do what it says, and you'll have a good life. But as we're going to see in this story, that little bit of dying wisdom that David gives to his son the wisest man that ever lived, ironically, it was forgotten or intentionally disregarded. But Solomon as a king started out pretty good. He comes to God and God offers Solomon the very desires of his heart. Let's look at 1 Kings chapter 3. 
This is what it says. The most important of these places of worship was Gibeon. So the king went there, this was Solomon, and sacrificed a thousand burnt offerings. And that night the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream. And God says, what do you want? Ask, and I will give it to you. Solomon replied, what would you do if God said, ask anything you want and I'll give it to you? You probably have a list already of what that may be. But here's what Solomon asked for. You showed great and you showed great and faithful love to your servant, my father, David, because he was honest and true and faithful to you. And you have continued to show this great and faithful love to him today by giving him a son to sit on his throne. Now, O oh Lord my God, you have made me king instead of my father David, but I am like a little child who doesn't know his way around. And here I am in the midst of your own chosen people, a nation so great and numerous they cannot be counted. Give me an understanding heart so that I can govern your people well and know the difference between right and wrong for who by himself is able to govern this great people of yours. The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for wisdom. So God replied, Because you have asked for wisdom in governing my people with justice and have not asked for a long life or wealth or the death of your enemies, I will give you what you ask for. I will give you a wise and understanding heart so as no one else has had or ever will have. And I will also give you what you did not ask for, riches and fame. No other king in all the world will be compared to you for the rest of your life. And if you follow me and obey my decrees and my commands as your father David did, I will give you a long life. Then Solomon woke up and realized it had been a dream and he returned to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the Lord's covenant where he sacrificed burnt offerings and peace offerings and he invited all his officials to a great banquet. <coughs> Notice what's in Solomon's heart. Notice the nature of it. It wasn't self-seeking. He genuinely wanted to be a good king. <laughs> he wants to govern the people well. He wanted to be a great leader. He said, the job's too big for me. I need your help, oh God. That's what God wants to hear. That's what brings joy to his heart when we as a people say, God, I need you. And what's revealing here is that this selfless attitude that was reflected and recognized in his deep need for God starts Solomon on the course to be a great king. His heart is in the right place. He's full of the things of God. We find him using that wisdom to make decisions of justice. A little bit later on in that chapter, we, we hear the story of two prostitutes. Two prostitutes who lived together, and they both became pregnant, very close together. And one night, one of the ladies rolled over in her sleep and smothered her baby, and it died. She got up and realized her baby was dead and looks over and sees her friend and that baby and she gets up and takes her dead baby over and puts it down and takes the live baby and puts it to, and takes it back to her bed in the morning. 
the mother, the other mother wakes up and there's a dead baby in her bed. And she tries to, to, to work with her and it's dead. And, and as it became light, she realized, this is not my baby. But the other lady said, no, that's your baby. And they ended up taking the issue to the king. And they come in before the king and they started arguing, this is my baby, no, it's my baby. And they just arguing back and forth. And finally, King Solomon says, give me a sword. And they brought a sword. He said, cut the baby in two and give them each a half. And the one mother says, oh no, no king, don't do that. Let her have the baby. It's okay, let her have the baby. And the other woman said, oh, cut her in half and we'll each have a part. And so King Solomon says, give it to the woman who wanted the baby to live. She is the real mother. And the Bible says that, that uh, in first, verse 28 of that chapter, it says, when all Israel heard the king's decision, the people were in awe of the king, for they saw the wisdom God had given him for rendering uh, justice. And the Bible goes on in the next chapter to say how the, the kingdom prospered and, and they, they were all, they ate, they drank, they were happy. It says that they had peace on all sides and during Solomon's lifetime from one end to the other they lived in safely. Everyone had their own vine. Everyone had their own fig tree. Under his leadership the people lived in peace and they were a prosperous nation. And the prosperity was shared by everyone. Solomon didn't keep it all to himself as many kings would, but he, it says they lived in safety and everyone had their own vine, their own fig tree. What it was saying, no one was homeless. Everyone had all they needed to eat. He took care of their people and life was good. And so in the early days of Solomon's reign, we see a powerful and very generous king. And even though he did make some mistakes early, by and large, Solomon had a heart for God and he lived and ruled righteously. And in so doing, God blessed them. Oh, if the story only ended right here. <laughs> if this was the total, the summation, the epitaph of, of, of Solomon's uh, life. Uh, but it isn't. We find that as he gets settled in, one of the things that God told Solomon he wanted him to do was to build a temple. And this temple was a grand structure that God specifically told Solomon that he was going to build. David wanted to build it, but God says, no, you're a man of war and a man that has shed blood. I don't want you building it. Solomon became the one who would build it. Solomon's heart was so full of God. But at this point in his life, it begins to be filled with stuff, other stuff. We see his focus in this time period beginning to shift from God and his people to his own lifestyle and his own appetites. 
In 1 Kings chapter 5, we see Solomon making his preparations for building uh, the temple. And, and right away, we see a shift in values somewhat. A, a man that had been so concerned uh, about his people and everybody having and everybody being provided for. In verse 13 of chapter 5, it says that King Solomon constrict, conscripted laborers from Israel, about 30,000 men. He had ruled, as we said, with justice and, and without oppression. And those things were dear to the heart of God, that his people wouldn't be oppressed. But now he begins this great work of building, and he starts by making slaves uh, of 30,000 uh, of his own people. Some translations use the words conscripted, but if you understand what conscripted means, uh, it means you're, you're, you're forced. You have no choice. You're going to be slave laborers. Uh, and God, that is not what God wanted. So on the surface, we see this great and wise king constructing this incredible house of worship for God. But underneath, there were already different forces beginning to work in King Solomon's uh, heart. Uh, it's interesting what William Wilberforce, who was a British politician back during the days of the fight against slavery. And he says this, prosperity hardens the heart. When things are going good, well, that's what we seem to look for. That's what we seem to live for. That when things are good, that's what we have. But yet, when things are good and everything seems to be going our way, that's when we seem to turn away from God. That's when it seems like we can handle this. Uh, we don't need Him. And so as the story progresses, we see that it takes a little over seven years for Solomon to build uh, the temple. It's an amazing structure. It says in verse chapter 6 that the temple that King Solomon built for the Lord was 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Not terribly big, uh, but it was an impressive work. It took those 30,000 30, slaves, uh, plus he had 150,000 people that evidently he paid uh, that were supervised by 3,300 uh, foremen. Uh, this was a huge undertaking. The design was precise. It was very ornate. Uh, it was very elaborate. There were huge detailed carvings of angels and palm trees and flowers. And if you read those chapters there, you'll see the very detailed uh, ornateness that was a part of this temple. It was amazing. And it took seven years to build when it was finished, leaders from all over the world would come to see this thing that Solomon had built and be amazed at its awesomeness. But check this out. During this time, Solomon also began to build a little palace for himself right next door. And he used those same labors, those slave labors, to build his palace uh, and that little palace was bigger than the temple. According to chapter 7, 
It said Solomon also built, built a palace for himself, took 13 years to complete the construction. One of the buildings was the palace of the forest of Lebanon. It was 150 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. He spent almost twice as long building his house, which was almost twice as big uh, as was the temple that he built for the Lord. And then he also built a house for, for his Egyptian wife. And he built another part of the complex, a house of pillars and a house just for his throne. And once this complex was built, of course, when you, when you build a house, what's the next thing you have to do? You have to furnish it. And you go and you look at this and I want that. And, and Solomon began uh, to put things into it. And it, it goes on in chapter, in chapter 10 and it says, King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold, each weighing more than 15 pounds. These were to be put on the walls in the palace. He also made 300 more smaller shields that were made out of four pounds uh, uh, of gold. And he put these in the, in the palace of the forest of Lebanon. And then he made this huge throne. He decorated with ivory, overlaid with fine gold. This throne had six steps and a rounded back. There were armrests on both sides of the seat, and the figure of a lion stood on each side of the throne. There were also 12 other lions, one standing on each end of the six steps. No other throne in all the world could be compared to it. All of Solomon's drinking cups were solid gold, and there were all, as were all the utensils in the palace of the forest of Lebanon. They were not made of silver, for silver was considered worthless in Solomon's day. And so here he is, this beautiful palace with the most expensive things that you could put on the wall as decoration. He ends up building this house for himself and a separate house for his wife the, the, who was an Egyptian. Uh, and, and, and we find that his heart, this heart that was so full of God and worship of God, beginning to be clogged uh, beginning to be clogged. Forget silverware. He has goldware. Silver. Silver was for the peasants. It was all about gold. Gold was everywhere. Gold is shiny. It felt good. And it was the stuff that he made out of gold. Uh, and it had his heart. In fact, this story tells us that after this temple and his palace were completed, he became a connoisseur of stuff. He, as we said, was especially fond of gold and he had all kind of gold products and he began to accumulate an unparalleled in history amount of gold. Uh, we see that he, he had uh, four and a half tons of gold that was given to him by, from Hiram. That's a hundred in today's, what gold sells for today, that'd be $199 million worth of gold. And then it says that the, 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 um, he gets 16 tons uh, from another place, $708 million worth. 
And then it says, that doesn't count all the revenues that came in from the merchants and the traders and the governors of the land. 25 tons a year. Now you think $25,000 a week for life is something. Think of 25 tons of gold every year. That's over a billion dollars a year. You can make a lot of stuff. You can buy a lot of stuff with that amount of gold. And Solomon did. Further in the story, we read that he didn't uh, just accumulate gold, but he sent his ships all over the world to bring back uh, uh, exotic animals from all over the world. There, there was chariots from Egypt, and there were just all kind of stuff. It, you know, if he had QVC back then, he would have been buying everything on it all day long. And he just accumulated and accumulated. He was a stuffaholic. But you'd say, well, what's wrong with that? He had the money and, and he was investing and he was bringing all of this stuff in. Well, remember what David told him before he died? David said, don't forget the law of Moses. Don't forget what God said in the law. And he had some very specific things to say about the king. This is what the law of Moses says. The king must not build up a large stable of horses for himself or send his people to Egypt to buy horses. For the Lord has told you, you must never return to Egypt. The king must not take many wives for himself because they will turn his heart away from the Lord. And he must not accumulate large amounts of gold, silver for himself. Sounds like Solomon's in trouble, doesn't it? Every one of those things that God specifically said, King, don't do it, uh, Solomon did. Early in the story, when Solomon was young, when he was needy, the narrative talks about how he worshiped God and cared for them. But after he's been in the job here for a while, we, we see this king that was generous and shared his wealth uh, becoming one that was no longer full of God but full of his own stuff. And those things controlled him. Little by little, the stuff distanced him from the heart of God. And we find in, in, in uh, chapter 11 that it says the Lord was angry with Solomon for his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. There was no longer room for God in his heart. Too much stuff had accumulated there. If he had just taken his father's advice, if he had even taken his own advice. Solomon was the one who wrote the book of Proverbs. And in Proverbs, this is what he says. Trust in your money and down you go. But the godly will flourish like leaves in spring. How much better to get wisdom than gold, he says, and good judgment than silver. He said, for the riches don't last forever and the crown might not be passed to the next generation. And indeed, his crown was not secure. His clogged and divided heart ultimately led in a divided kingdom and a nation of Israel that would never be the same. So what can we learn from a guy like this? 
Is his story just too ancient, too once upon a time to have anything to do with my life? I don't think so. In fact, I think there are some, there, there, there are many surprising parallels between him and us. Now, I don't have a million dollars, and maybe you don't either. But what would I do if I did? What would I do if I woke up tomorrow and I had a million or ten million or a billion as he had? What would I do with that? What would I become? I don't know. I, I would like to think that I would handle it well and use it to bless and let God use it through me. But I've seen too many people that have come into wealth and see it change them. Much like Solomon, I like stuff. Just like you do. For me, especially things that are maybe electronic, like computers and phones and all of those things that we see and we think, oh, if I had that, a man. And so... We, we look for those things that money can buy. Oh, if I had a million dollars. You know, we buy things and just take like computers and that. You know, I remember when I bought my first computer, went into Bacho's, and I told him I needed a computer. And so he hooked me up with a computer. It had... I think, I don't know if it had 25 megs hard drive and a 4 megahertz processor, I think it was. And he told me, Bob, this is the only computer you will ever need. <laughs> it was a lie. <laughs> All right. My phone right now is like a thousand times faster than that old computer. It's not like things ever wear out and you have to buy more. Once you buy something, you know, you have it forever, right? Actually, Solomon is maybe smarter than us in this area. At least Solomon had the good sense that his stuff was made out of gold. And if things got rough, you could melt it down and get your money back. But for us, uh, when our things wear out or we, we decide that they're not worth having anymore, the most we can get is a yard sale price of pennies on the dollar or sell it on, on eBay. Uh, the conversation in our day, really, though, is not so much about money. Our, you know, where we are is this pursuit uh, of stuff. Stuff. Our, 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 you know, we're not, in, in our culture, it's not how much money we can accumulate, it's how much stuff we can get. All right? And it seems in our culture that we, we have as much stuff as our income allows. And if we get an increase in income, it just translates into more stuff. We don't really have enduring wealth. We just keep raising our, what we call raising our standard uh, of living. You've all seen and probably have heard the advertisements uh, a million times. What's in your wallet? What's in your wallet? And when they ask that question, 
They're not trying to put more cash in your wallet. What do they want to put in your wallet? A credit card so that what? You can get more stuff, right? And have less cash, less money. Those things that we buy, it's not even like a generation ago. You buy something and it might last a lifetime. But today we live in a world of what is called plan obsolescence. It's a term that was coined back in the 50s. And, and, and it's for products that are made to strategically wear out. In other words, we could make them to last a lifetime, but we make them so they wear out after a certain period of time. So what? So that you have to buy a new one. I were, uh, had a guy in our church in Kentucky that worked for a tire company that said, Bob, we can make tires that will never wear out, but we, we engineer them to wear out after so many miles so that you'll buy more tires. And this is a whole makeup of our consumerism economy is this idea of planned obsolescence. It fuels uh, our consumption engine. It's even worse today because now we don't only have planned obsolescence, we have what is called perceived obsolescence. And it's a strategy of marketing that makes you say, ah, you know, that's too old. Or look at this. This is a lot better packaging. You know, how many times do you see they change the packaging or the style just to make you buy a new one and what you have still works. Now there's a few of you here that haven't bought into that and you still have your flip phone. You know who you are, right? <laughs> but it's the whole thing. You know, you can call people just like anyone else in here can call people. But maybe you can't do all the other fancy things. But we, we have, we're, we're driven with this thing that says you gotta have the newest, you gotta have this. That's, that, oh, that's old fashioned, that's out of date. You need this. We're barraged by advertisements all day long that tell us that our car is old, that our clothes are out of style, that our hair is uglier than sin and you need to do something about it. Are those strategies successful? They say that today we, are, we consume 100% more different things than we did back in 1950, probably more than 100%. Our volume of garbage, the stuff we throw away, has doubled just since 1980. In the US, we have 5% of the world's population, but we produce 40% of the world's garbage. I was coming home from Pittsburgh this weekend and driving through the back country coming up through. And I look up on the hill and they're out there in the middle of nowhere. And there were five long rows of storage units out in the middle of nowhere. You can go anywhere you want and find these storage units. Down in Pittsburgh, driving by it and seeing these climate controlled units, huge buildings. And, and it just seems like everywhere you look, uh, we are storing. And the picture up there, I like the name of that one, life storage. You know, bring it all in here and store it. Bring, you know, they build a bigger barn and bring it in. 
But what's sad is that those who study um, the culture say that our nation's happiness, degree of happiness and contentment, peaked back in the 50s and has been going down ever since. Right after this consumption engine was pumped into our culture and has been cranking this out, we were happier when we had less stuff. So I think we need maybe even more than Solomon some instruction from God on this issue. And thankfully God does speak to it in his word. The Bible talks a lot about wealth and what we do with it. We could pick a ton of passages, but let's just close with one. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul says this, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Are you rich? It's easy to read a verse like that and say, yeah, those rich people need to listen to this. As I've shared with you many times, especially speaking around missionary convention time, we live on a planet of 7.7 billion people. And 7.5 of them, billion, are poorer than you. Think about that. You, you know, we hear in our culture the 1%, and it gets us to be jealous of those that are super rich. But the world looking on, you and I are super rich. We are the 1%. If God's speaking to anybody, he's speaking to us. Not just Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos. He's saying to you at Hyde Wesleyan today, he says, uh, as for you, I charge you, don't be haughty. Don't think, I, you know, I am, I'm cool. He said, don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches of what money can buy, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. A couple things we can take away this morning. Rely on God and not on stuff. This verse is a promise. It says that if we put our hope in God, we can live a rich life. It doesn't say we'll be materially rich. It's not a prosperity gospel that Paul is speaking about here. The promise is for a rich life with meaning, with purpose, because we have a relationship with God that is rich. It's about being rich in God, not about being rich uh, in stuff. The problem is, much of the time, we find ourselves seeking to find meaning in stuff. That's why we always seek to have the latest and the greatest and the best and the most. 
That's why planned and perceived obsolescence works so well because it, it, it grabs at our human fallen heart that says, I've got to build my kingdom. We get our identity from our stuff. What if all your stuff was taken away? Who would you be? Hmm? What if you lost everything? Who would you be? That's why in the Great Depression, so many of the rich jumped out of buildings, killed themselves, because they didn't like who they were apart from what they possessed. We buy something, and we want everyone to see us so that they'll know how cool we really are. We get our identity from the car that we drive or the neighborhood that we live in or the clothes that we wear or the gun that we shoot with. A million other things uh, that says, this is who I am. And every one of those things is uncertain. Every one of those things is going to wear out or break down. And God says, don't get your identity from those. Get them from your relationship with me. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have a house, we shouldn't make investments, we shouldn't uh, uh, have things. Uh, that's not what we're saying. In fact, God says in that very verse, everything is there for us to enjoy. He wants us to enjoy the gifts that he gives us. But if they begin to clog our heart, uh, it will divide us into my space and God's space. And what happens when we begin to make that division, this is mine and this is God's, my stuff begin to crowd out God. My stuff just has a way of growing. And after a while, it even crowds out God's voice. You see, the question is not, what's in your wallet? The question is, what's in your heart? What's in your heart? When Solomon was young and needed God and relied upon him, the kingdom prospered. But when he began to accumulate riches, that he began to say, this is mine. We begin to see them taking over his heart. And even his kingdom in the end began to wither. As a people of God, the more we rely on Him, the more our identity is found in Him and not in our stuff, the more we're going to enjoy life. You know, the Bible talks about it's more blessed to give than receive. It's what He's talking about. Let God bless through you. He doesn't just want to bless you. He wants to bless through you. Paul continues in that verse, uh, that passage of scripture, he says, they are the, to the rich. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. He's not, he's saying not only do we need to rely on God and not our stuff, but we're to be generous with our stuff. Be generous with your stuff. How do you hold your stuff? How do you hold? Just think of that mentally. How do you, what is your heart position with your stuff? Is it this? Or is it this? How do you hold it? Each of us have 
a way that we hold our stuff in our hearts. And most of us Americans hold it like this. It's mine. I've worked for it. I've earned it. I enjoy it. I drove by a, a house the other day and they had, I think it was um, six or eight four-wheelers and two side-by-sides in their driveway all lined up. I don't know. I think they're the four-wheelers and that was worth more than the house um, if you looked at things. But their stuff, my stuff, I have it. Be generous. Now that sounds easy, but here's the problem. My stuff doesn't want to leave me. My stuff wants me to keep it. And my stuff isn't satisfied just being there. It wants more stuff to keep company with that stuff. And, and it's just for, you know, it's just... Think of your garage. Think of your basement. The stuff that is there. And maybe the storage unit or the barn or the shed. The stuff that we have, it just like a community that needs friends and it just keeps growing. You know, the more stuff I have, the less generous I am. Now that's just statistical. I'm sure there's exceptions. But statistically speaking, the more I have, the less generous I become. The rich... As, as, our, our, as our wealth increases, generosity percentage-wise decreases. It's, it's just a proven fact. It also is, is true culturally. Back during the Depression, Americans gave more to the church percentage-wise than they do today. That's just a fact. The more that we are blessed, the less we tend to give because stuff begins to have a grip on me and I can't let it go. So the more we have, the less we're willing to part with it. What's more, we begin more and more to identify ourselves with our stuff. If I give it away, if I give this, well then I won't be able to and maybe, you know, if I, if I help that child get a coat, uh, you know, that'd be nice, but, you know, I was really wanting to get a new jacket for spring. And I know I have six, but I like that one I saw. And, and, and our mind begins to operate in those ways that are only thinking about how to secure myself. Uh, generosity cramps our lifestyle. So why would I do it? Well, Paul says there at the end of that verse, he says, so that they may take hold, we do it, we're generous, so that we may take hold of that which is truly life. Real life, he said, is not found in stuff. Stuff gets in the way. Stuff clogs our heart that is made for God. Stuff, crea stuff creates a lifestyle, not a life. You know, it creates what people sees. And many times, what they, if they could see our, our heart, see who we are, it doesn't look like this beautiful outside that we have created. Uh, 
The stuff we accumulate actually takes life away. It doesn't give it. Often the more lifestyle we have, the less life we have. The more stuff we have, the more it owns us. Solomon spent his life creating this lifestyle. And yet, listen to the words that he writes coming to the end. He starts out, he says, those who love money will never have enough. That comes from a man that had it all. I think it was Rockefeller, John D. Rockefeller, the billionaire tycoon, that someone asked him, how much money does it take to make you happy? And his answer was, just a little bit more. And that's where we are. That's where we are as a people. Those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. The more you have, the more people come to help you spend it. So what good is wealth? Except perhaps to watch it slip through your fingers. People who work hard sleep well, whether they eat little or much. But the rich seldom have a good night's sleep. My guess is that towards the end of Solomon's life, he didn't sleep too well. Life, as he comes to the end, he said, it's meaningless. So what should we do with God's instructions to us? Well, hopefully, unlike Solomon, I hope that we'll take it to heart and follow God's instruction. Money and stuff, it can buy all, it can, uh, money and stuff can buy gifts, but they can't buy God's gift. They aren't meant to take his place in your heart. Francis Chan said this. He said, how we spend our money is equivalent to choosing God or rejecting him. That's a deep thought. Maybe write it down, tuck it away. It says, how we spend our money is equivalent to choosing God or rejecting him. Everything I do is, is a reflection of my relationship with God. Where am I at in my relationship with with God. Let's choose God with our money because when we do, we have life and not just a lifestyle. Solomon comes to the end. He looks back in this book called Ecclesiastes. 37 times in the King James, they use the word vanity, vanity, or meaningless. Look at verse 2 at the beginning of that book. Meaningless meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. He was looking back over his life. He was looking back at the things he'd done. Looking back at the things he had accomplished. Looking back at the things he had accumulated. And as he looked at it, he said, it's meaningless. When you come to the end, you can't take any of it with you. He died just like everybody else and left it all behind and left a mess behind. He gets to the end of the book and he gives this summation. He says, now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. If you want to get what life is and boil it down, he says, this is what really matters. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or bad. So he says, listen, you want to know what life is about? Fear God, keep his commandments because God knows everything and everything we do is going to be judged, is going to be held up to his microscope, whether it's out in the open or whether it's secret, God is going to judge. 
What he was saying basically here, if you want to look at his life, he was saying, it's not about stuff. It's about knowing God. It's about a relationship with him. Solomon started out strong, and yet a good beginning does not guarantee a good finish. And Solomon's blessing became his curse. It ended up separating him from relationship with God. Ask God for wisdom. Desire to finish strong. Pray for it. Be generous to a fault. Don't let stuff control your life. The question is, what is in your heart? What is in your heart? Jane Park was 17 years old. The youngest woman ever to win a lottery in Britain. She won a million pounds. And she is suing the lottery system because she said they ruined her life. Now we laugh at that. But listen to some of the things she said. At times it feels like winning the lottery has ruined my life. I thought it would make it ten times better, but it's made it ten times worse. I wish I had no money most days. My life would have been so much easier if I hadn't have won. She said she's sick of shopping. She struggles to find a boyfriend that isn't just using her for her money. She said, I'm never sure whether I'm being loved for myself or for my bank account. She's used her lottery winnings to pay for plastic surgery and designer shoes and extravagant nights out clubbing. She bought a flashy Range Rover and bought properties and traveled around the world. But she said, the lavish lifestyle has only made me feel empty inside. People think at, look at me and think, I wish I had her lifestyle. I wish I had her money. I have material things, but apart from that, my life is empty. She says, what is my purpose in life? She said, money can't buy you love. Money can't buy you friends. Money can't buy you family. I hope you'll take 1 Timothy chapter 6, 17 through 19 and take it home this week and just allow God to speak to your heart through it. Ask Him to show you how well you're doing in this area of stuff. What is your grip on your stuff? Find a place where you can be alone and just let God's voice speak to you once again. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart is. Where's your treasure this morning? What's in your heart? Shall we stand? Father God, thank you this morning for the blessings that you bless us with. And so many times we we think of that and we think of material things that you have given to us. We thank you, dear Lord, for the ease of our lives. We look around the world and there's so many people that struggle to 
put a roof over their head and food on their family's table. And we have an abundance. We thank you for those things. But oh God, I pray that you will help us like to not be like Solomon and allow those things to stifle the voice of God in our lives. Help us to hold those things with an open hand and not with clenched fist. If you say, I want that, that we are willing to give to you what you have blessed us with. May we truly be channels and not, not troughs that just fill up and see how much they can hold, but, but truly a river that you flow through us to bless others. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for our sins of selfishness. Help us to look around our world and to see those needs that you want to, that you want to intervene in. And Lord, may we be your hands and feet. Help us, dear Lord, that our relationship with you will be much greater than our attachment to things. Father, free us. Free us from what our culture is trying to make us into. Help us, dear Lord, to not be so much concerned about what is in our wallet, but what is in our heart. We ask in your holy name. Amen. God bless you.